that's the normal practice. I would never expect to see a bill until it's been introduced and the timing of any introduction of a bill, that is a matter for the Scottish Government. That's up to them. That was Alison Johnston, the presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament, talking about the lack of any promised independence bill one year out of a Scottish Government timetable for a referendum. You can hear my full interview with her later in the show as she reflects on her first year in the job and looks at the big challenges ahead. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson, Callum Ross and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories compiled and read by Alex Watson. UK Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg is being criticised for trying to brush off more than 100 fines for the Partygate scandal as a non-story. The MP even questioned whether the rules set by his own government were right in the first place. The Foreign Secretary has urged a meeting of G7 foreign ministers to maintain sanctions against Russia until it has fully withdrawn from Ukraine. Liz Truss used the meeting in Germany to urge for rolling sanctions until all troops have left the country. Ireland's Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Coveney, says the UK government would be acting in an anti-democratic way if it goes through with its threat to override elements of the post-Brexit treaty. In Britain, government ministers have been increasingly hinting they could take unilateral action on the protocol. Boris Johnson has argued the Good Friday Agreement is more important than the protocol he signed up to. Thanks, Alex. It's been a couple of weeks since we last gathered here in the Stushy Bunker for a chat, but we've not been idle. There's been a council election to cover and some great debates which we have brought to you with councillors answering your questions along the way. Hopefully you'll all have had time to dig into those debates before ranking your local candidates back on May the 5th. But now the dust has settled and we're into the backroom chat sort of part of the process. Justin, you were there keeping that live blog ticking over with all the action. Are you over the trauma yet? I would say that I am. It was an interesting election. It was a very successful election for the SNP. They have a majority in Dundee, just one of, I believe, two majorities in the country for any of Scotland's major political parties. They also did very well in Fife and made gains there. And in that respect, it was an interesting election for the SNP. They have hailed it as a major success. They did make gains on 2017. However, 2017 was maybe seen as a bit of a poorer local election compared to some of their national results. And there were areas of concern for the SNP as well on the West Coast. They lost Western Bartonshire to Labour, who now run that council. And while they were still the largest party in Glasgow, they did see a significant decline in their seat share there. So very much a bit of a mixed bag for the SNP across the country. As I say, in some areas there's been major gains and Angus was another area where they did well too and they will form the administration there as well. Perfect and Ross was one where they managed to overtake the Tories. So they, along with the other parties, definitely profited from the decline in the Tory vote and anger over Partygate. That was very much the central message of Nicola Sturgeon's election pitch, despite it being a local campaign. She very much wanted voters to send a message to Boris Johnson that voters were angry over Partygate and over inaction regarding the cost of living crisis. So yes, interesting election and a kind of mixed picture for the SNP with some major successes. Yeah, I mean, the sort of the big picture stuff, Nicola Sturgeon getting a big victory, but the wings being clipped in some places. Douglas Ross clearly got a big backlash, but he did hold up quite well in his own backyard. Um, and I, I guess 
Labour bouncing back into second place. Um, the Lib Dems, uh, as the dust settled, they did very well in England, maybe mopping up a lot of that anger and did, you know, put on some gains in Scotland. But um, and the Greens as well, getting some good gains from from a, a lower starting point. But um, that you know, there were there were other things going on the edges um, that we've been looking into a little bit more in detail. Adele, you were you were sort of looking at um, the what could have been of the election as well. Alex Salmond was um, sitting there in the 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 counting the, the, while the count was being done in Aberdeen. He didn't. He looked a fairly forlorn character at the end of that as well. For, for Alba, it started off quite the, one of their biggest hopes was up in Aberdeenshire, Brian Topping, who had been a councillor for almost 40 years and is really well known and and popular in his Fraserburgh ward in Aberdeenshire. And I think that was an indication of how things were going to go on the day when he failed to be elected. Um, He did get over 5% of the vote, but yeah, just not enough to get get in. And then I think it was around mid-afternoon, about three o'clock, Alex Salmond said, you know, effectively conceded that they're not going to win any councillor seats at all and he chose to put a positive spin on things saying that the party had won more than five percent in first preference votes in a number of wards but it's a far cry from the sort of predictions that he was making while launching the party's manifesto in Dundee in April he said he told activists that he thought they were going to make a political breakthrough. And I mean, this comes on the back, you know, the wider context that comes off the back of the Holyrood elections where they never saw any MSPs elected. And so it looks difficult to see where they're going from here. He he did say that they're going that he's going to lead them into the Holyrood elections and kind of emphasizing how it takes a long time to for a political party to to gain support. But it mm. it certainly wasn't a political breakthrough in this election there were independent people elected all over the country personal votes but mm-hmm. this personal vote just melted um so yeah it's it was it, it would have probably come as a a big shock to the to the alpa strategists because yeah this was you know failure at the national election and then well well we'll try at the town halls but it's not happened so yeah what next they blamed the failure on the on the smp saying that they had told voters that they shouldn't be not to lend their preference their other preference votes to pro-independence parties such as theirs so it didn't look like they were looking too much at their own strategy they seemed to be blaming more the SNP for that one it didn't hurt the greens much though did it that's the they they, they did all right and they're pro-independence in hollywood yeah they've obviously made big gains particularly in the central belt yeah. and uh, in part because i guess the increased prominence they've had at a at government level, but it certainly hasn't put off pro-independence voters uh, lending their vote or giving their vote to them. Yeah. Where are we still waiting for some answers? Aberdeen's quite an interesting one um, because obviously Aberdeen Labour got into a bit of trouble with the party, their own party before, and we're still waiting for a bit of an answer from them, aren't we? Yeah, I was just looking there. The North East hasn't really delivered many answers on on who's going to be leading the council so far. It still seems to be that most of the most councils are involved in talks still. Um, for Aberdeen, it was obviously very controversial in 2017 because you had the SNP returned as the biggest party, but in the end, it was the independents, the Tories and Labour that went into a coalition together. So you got an Aberdeen Labour had their manifesto and a lot of the policies they wanted um, brought forward despite coming third 
in votes behind the SNP and the Tories. So it was a really interesting one. Obviously, they were those nine councillors were suspended from their party for doing so, for joining with the Tories. Um, it looks this time, from what I can see, that SNP are in talks with the Liberal Democrats who returned four councillors. That would give them enough for a majority that those two parties have been in opposition together for the last five years. So they have, in many cases, joined forces. So that seems to be the natural way things are going. But I think there's always surprises with these things. I mean, you never know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, further north, Callum, you were... you. you, you take a bit of attention here to the sort of the, the goings on in the, the highlands and islands and places like this where there's not so much of a tradition of big party politics running the, the administrations. But I think um, the independent vote sort of fell back a little bit um, in, in, in places beyond the, the cities and the, the bigger the bigger council administrations. What, what's the sort of going on up there? Can we learn anything from the changing kind of voting patterns and maybe uh, more party politics coming in. Also a problem with people not actually contesting wards. You know, folk were elected weeks before the vote actually happened. Um, do you think Do you think there's a problem getting people involved in local politics? Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point, Andy. I mean, I think I think going back, looking back to, I think it was around 2007 when the multi-member wards came in. You know, they changed the electoral system and there was a lot of talk around that time that that would spell the end of the kind of dominance of the uh, independent councillors in, in Highland. And it didn't really happen. They still um, they still emerged as the as the biggest group. If you if you see them as a group, uh, uh, I think some people struggled with that concept at, at first that you voted for independence, and then after the election, they turned around and said they they were a group and were going to, you know, run the council. Uh, as a group, uh, uh, sometimes in coalition, but I think I think slowly and uh, that it is starting to change. Um, there's some evidence of that anyway. I think the SNP. I've, I've not looked at it too closely, but I think the the SNP group overtook the independents at Highland Council for the for the first time uh, at this election. That would be the first time that the independents weren't weren't the uh, largest group at Highland Council. So that is a, a sign of the the times. I think your point about uh, lack of people coming forward is interesting. I mean, that's that's something I kind of noticed, not just in the north, but kind of across the piece. That, that you know, there's there's some interesting people being elected, some new young talents, so more women. I think we saw you know women elected in Western Isles Council, which hadn't happened last time. Is obviously welcome, but also a lot of the same faces that we've um, seen for years and years. Um, you know, I'm not naming any names or anything, but, um, uh, you know, possibly not always, you know, the most talented <laughs> people, yet they get <laughs> elected, uh, you know, at, at every election. And I think I think, I think, think more could be done. I think it would be benefit kind of local government if, if there was more interest in standing. And maybe that kind of mm-hmm. opens up debates around, around pay and, and that kind of thing, because you do have the... Um, the old argument about yeah. the pay levels as they are basically only if you're a, a, and the time time involved in being a counselor basically only sort of re- retired men can uh, can afford to to do it. So um, yeah, it's maybe one that that will be looked at over mm. the coming years. Well, that that idea about the sort of the the, the lack of diversity or the lack of interest, um, something that at a national level, Alison Johnson's been picking up. Um, 
she talking to me um, earlier this week was was keen to stress how she wants to promote more more voices from the back benches and more diverse parliament, more gender balance, that kind of um, that kind of ambition. But of course, it was a it was a difficult first year um, since the the national election, given the the massive amount of restrictions from the pandemic. Um, I, I I joined Alison Johnson in Dundee on Monday. Um, it's her anniversary, first year in the job today. So we had a wee reflection on what that year was like. Um, just to tee her up, Alison Johnson was elected as a Green MSP in the Lothians in 2011. But that, uh, the finally balanced election last year, she went for the, the neutral job in the presiding officer's chair. For those unfamiliar with that role, it's like the Speaker of the House of Commons, but a bit less shouty. Um, the first year was conducted in a half-empty chamber. Hybrid working's been sorted, or is, is at least a work in progress, and most of the debate was on the pandemic. But with that all changing now, I started by asking her how that first year went and what her plans are for the second year. It certainly changed in the last few weeks, that's for sure. I've been able to to make an outward visit to to Dublin, for example. I've been able to to meet people in the flesh and welcome them to the Parliament. And just the last couple of weeks, the first time I've presided over, you know, a full parliamentary chamber. So it's certainly sounding noisier, um, <laughs> but it's great to see so many colleagues having that opportunity to come together, some for the first time, actually. It has been an interesting year, a challenging one. I think the, the parliament and its staff team have really risen to the challenge of ensuring that business is delivered during all the many stages of covid but yeah, just a great privilege and an honour to be presiding over the Parliament's most diverse Parliament to date, too. When you when you started the job, you would have had an in-tray of things that you probably wanted to do, things you wanted to change with the way that debates are conducted and things like that, um, especially with your years of experience on the benches yourself. Because of the nature of the of the the restricted chamber. Do you feel that there's um, unfinished business there, big changes that you need to make now that you're seeing how the chamber is maybe not adapted or changed, it's still the same place, or have you noticed any differences? Well, I've been in Parliament since 2011, and I think my own experience was one that Parliament was becoming more inclusive. It was, you know, there was a willingness to make sure that we heard voices across the spectrum from all parties, you know, regardless of size. I first came into to Parliament as one of two members of a minority party. So I've had that experience as well. But I just want to make sure, I suppose I've got a real focus on making sure that we hear voices across the chamber, representing people across Scotland, and that all members feel equally comfortable and able to represent their constituents, their region, to the very best of their ability. One of the, the most frequent complaints that I I hear, and, and probably you do too, is... Um, Questions being asked that you probably sitting in the in, in the chair there thinking that's a softball question and then there's a whole load of waffle. How how are you able to sort of get that off the agenda and and try and get to the to the matters that people really want to hear about? Well, you know, parliamentarians adhere to a code of conduct and that's all about treating other MSPs and of course you know the staff within Parliament and so on with courtesy and respect. And I think it's respectful to answer the questions that are put to you as best as you can. So it's really important to me that answers are relevant to the questions that are asked. All parliamentarians have a role to play in scrutinising the government. And, um, you know, certainly as someone who was in opposition during my time at the other side, um, you, you know, when I wasn't in the chair, 
you know, you've got a duty to scrutinise the government to understand what's going on, to hold that government accountable to the people of Scotland who who elect us all. So I think as a parliamentarian, you always want to be seen to be doing your very best. Do your eyes roll occasionally, though, when you, maybe at First Minister's questions, when another backbencher of the party of government stands up and says, do you agree with me that everything's rosy in the garden? Do you just feel that there's work to be done there or is this just part and parcel? Well, you know, we're always going to have political questions from politicians, but people have a duty to be parliamentarians too, to really get stuck in, to understand the issues of the day. You know, why did something happen? Is is that the best response? You know, they've, they've got a real role to play there in scrutinising. And, you know, it becomes... There's really opportunity to develop your skill and your expertise and uh, as your experience grows and you're obviously watching others who've perhaps been in Parliament longer than you have and learning from them. But if if there's an issue that's of interest to you, then I would want to explore that to the best of my ability. And I see lots of, you know, I think we, we, we're sort of analysing what goes on in Parliament. As I was saying, we've got the most diverse Parliament to date, so 45% of women. But we're sort of delving into that and looking at the fact that, okay, women are making up 45% of parliamentarians. Are they asking 45% of the questions? Are they making that same percentage of interventions? So as as part of that work, you know, we're aware that just a, a week we looked at a snapshot recently, I think it's the week beginning the 28th of March, 178 questions were put to the government that week. Now that particular week, it just so happened that I believe around 62% were opposition questions because some questions are selected by ballot and so on. But I'm just making the point that there are many opportunities to scrutinise what is happening in Scotland in a given week. And my role is to make sure that parliamentarians across party are well aware of the opportunities that exist and to make that as... Well, just to make that as easy for them... as possible, and that is about having a chamber where people do treat one another with courtesy and respect. You, you mentioned there um, the the profile of the, of the chamber. When you're talking about um, that number of that high number of questions being put, are you seeing um, a gender balance? Are you seeing more voices that might not have been heard before getting getting through? Is that is it going? Is it getting better? Well, we've only been analysing for a short while. You know, previously we were seeing. You know, there's there's been a, a change in personnel, but, you know, you wouldn't be probably too surprised to see that previously almost all questions on transport were coming from male parliamentarians. You know, that's something that I think will will change. We now have a, uh, you know, Jenny Ruth is now the transport minister. We'll see a change there. But it's just very interesting to look at who's speaking on what topic, because we want to make sure that we're hearing the breadth of parliamentary voice and experience on on a whole range of issues. When I was looking back at um, when you started in the role and one of the interviews you gave at the time, you were saying that you, the, the last thing you want is a sterile, dull chamber. Um, obviously, lockdown came along and it's been a long time to get back up to the sort of more frenetic um, pace and volume that you might have been used to. Do you, do you think that that, that, um, that atmosphere is, is striking the right balance at the minute or do you sometimes think, particularly at First Minister's question, it's all getting a bit Westminster? There's a balance to be struck there. You'll not be surprised to learn that we receive correspondence from people across the country um, with with their views on what's happening in the chamber. It's really important that people can be heard, that they have an opportunity to put their views. But obviously people are elected into politics because they're passionate about a whole range of issues. But I, I do really want to make sure that it's somewhere where 
you know, people have different personalities too in the chamber. They bring a whole set of different life experiences. It's really important to me that the chamber is somewhere that all representatives feel comfortable to have their voice heard, to put those questions to the government. And yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, it, you don't want to operate in a incomplete silence. So there's a balance to be struck there. I mean, last week, um, FMQs took place just before the local government elections. And it's fair to say there was quite a lively atmosphere. I remember before the pandemic, there was certain MSPs, Gail Ross being one of them, um, who's no longer an MSP, but she had represented Caithness, an area in the far north, and had asked many times, I think, can we have some sort of hybrid working or Zoom calls, virtual meetings, things like that. And it was always rebuffed until, of course, it became an absolute necessity. And now it's maybe part of the the dynamic just going into future parliamentary sessions. So do you think Parliament has been a bit slow to adapt sometimes and it's taken like a crisis to to kick it along a little? I think undoubtedly the pandemic has changed the way that businesses across the globe work. I mean, we're doing things that we previously would have thought were impossible or that no one might accept, you know, but suddenly we were voting online very quickly and I cannot thank enough the staff in the parliament that made it possible for business to continue throughout this period without interruption. I mean, of course, there are several notable parliamentarians who've taken a step back from politics and certainly at least as part of their reason for seeking a change in career, they have mentioned the impact that parliamentary life was having on family life. You know, I'd have uh, many a chat with Gail and I know how difficult it was for her to be away from home days at a time and just a frustration perhaps that, you know, maybe if you weren't having a prominent role in an item of business, there was still a feeling that your presence was required, you know, in a certain place. So those are discussions that are happening across Parliament all the time. I mean, the corporate body has a duty to make sure that Parliament has the resources it needs to to carry on business. I think for you know obvious reasons of business continuity and so on, hybrid is something that will remain. And remember the the beast from the east, where where the country sort of ground to standstill for a few days. The fact that we've now got the ability to hold meetings regardless of how bad the weather is is something that you wouldn't want to lose. There's obviously a rather large elephant in the room in that. The Scottish government's stated policy is that we're going to have a second independence referendum. Um, first, do you think that the parliament as an institution is prepared for that? I think the parliament is ready to debate any of the issues of the day. You know, that's that's what we're here for. We're here to, to have robust debates, to scrutinise issues properly, to give them the full attention that they deserve. You know, we have committees that are set up to to look at specific issues, to call in expert witnesses, to come to a view. You know, Parliament is here to thrash out the issues of the day. I mean, we suppose one other thing, you know, the hybrid working is done. We're now able to take evidence from people across the globe, perhaps in a way that that wasn't always possible. Um, there's real work going on in Parliament to improve and increase the participation of, of, of Civic Scotland. You know, that's really important too. Um, I, th- I think we're very well placed to debate any and all issues that come our way. Has has um, any sort of draft legislation been put across your desk yet? No, I wouldn't expect to see any bill until the point at which it's introduced. That's that's what's, you know, that that's the normal practice. I would never expect to see a bill until it's been introduced, and the timing of any introduction of a bill that is a matter for the Scottish government. That's up to them. 
and, and given the um the, the rather heated discussion around it um have you in your position taken any steps in advance to sort of clear up any legal issues that you might be expecting i mean we look at the scottish government and they're having a little battle about releasing legal advice at the moment are you taking legal advice about how the parliament might fit into this discussion i am not whenever any bill is introduced at that point um and that's the point at which i'd expect to see a bill i receive very good advice from expert lawyers and you know, advice as appropriate, depending on the subject matter. And we have a chance, a very good chance to look at it then. But but nothing up to this point so far. You've not, you just basically wait until, until it's in front of you. Yeah, I think that's really important to look at it at the right point in time. You know, that's, that's important. You, you look at the bill as and when it's introduced. What else do you think, uh, looking to the to your second year in in the in the presiding officer's chair, what what else do you hope that the Scottish Parliament might get round to? Well, I think the second year of this term is going to feel like it's going to feel different to a lot of our new parliamentarians in particular. You know, we have forty three new MSPs, which is a sizable cohort um, of different experiences. So they'll have an opportunity. We'll all have an opportunity together to to feel what it's like for the hundred and twenty nine of us to be together in the same space. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I have um, undertaken, you know, in conjunction with others, we've got a gender sensitive audit going through Parliament at the moment. And that's that's work that the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association are keen that, that Parliament's undertaken. It just looks at how much your Parliament is, well, just has a look at what any barriers to equal participation in Parliament might be. And I suppose, you know, you're, you're mentioning parliamentarians who've left as a result of that work-life balance and so on. So that work is being progressed at the moment. We have an academic who will be interviewing MSPs and so on, and analysis will be forthcoming. I think, you know, the, the House of Commons have done this previously. I think they're having a look at recommendations. So we'll look at we'll look and see, you know, what, what comes out of that. But obviously equal representation is a matter for political parties too. You know, it's something that we have to come at from, from all angles. But it's, it's fair to say that, you know, there's a greater expectation now, isn't there? You know, you'll have taken part in many a panel that we that that panel properly represents the people it's talking to. And you know, when you look back at the decision that you you made to become to put yourself forward for presiding officer, do you do you have any regrets in that at all? I know that it was. Am I right in saying, in, in fact, that, that it was quite a, a late decision? You had to think about it quite long and hard. I mean, there was a, there was a very fine balance between the parties um, uh, at the time of the last election. Um, any regrets or are you perfectly happy with it? No, no no regrets at all. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a very difficult decision at the time because I, you know, I suppose like most people who get involved in politics, you really want to try and affect change. But I think you can, check, you can affect change in a lot of different roles in a lot of different ways. It's really important to me that we have another um, woman presiding officer and it's obviously a great privilege and a challenge but absolutely no regrets I'm learning every day as I always have in my whole political career and I'm you know surrounded by excellent debates and and many passionate well-informed people I may be throwing this a little bit far forward maybe we're only one year into it but uh, based on 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 what you've experienced so far do you want to stick around beyond the next election as well I very much I've I think if anyone looks at my I wouldn't say, well, so-called career tra trajectory has been pretty organic. You know, I got involved in politics in my 30s. Up to then, 
I was someone who'd go and vote every year. We'd have a chat about politics at home and so on. I don't come from a political background. I got involved in politics trying to save a school playing field. So the fact that I find myself here, you know, some two decades later is, let's let's just say it wasn't planned. So I just tend very much to to focus on what is at hand? What do I need to do in the immediate future to make sure I'm as well prepared as possible? Sure, I have a little look ahead. I'm absolutely determined that the Scottish Parliament continues to go from strength to strength. You know, it's very firmly part of, you know, people's daily life in Scotland. And I want it to become increasingly relevant to everyone that lives in Scotland and to increase that engagement and to make sure people know that this is their parliament. It's absolutely fabulous that we've now able to open our doors once more and to to welcome them in. But those, those are my, you know, immediate focuses. Alison Johnson, thanks for joining us on the Stushi. Thank you very much indeed. So it was a big first year for Alison Johnson as presiding officer in Parliament. Um, the pandemic restricted everything there and we're obviously reflecting quite a lot there on what's to come, including the potential for an independence referendum if the Scottish government actually delivers on that manifesto claim. Callum, do you think that uh, Parliament has um, coped with the first year of problems that it's had and, and is kind of living up to the occasion? Uh, well, I mean, I think it, it's got through it the best it could do. Um, from Alison Johnson's point of view, you know, your first year as presiding officer, obviously highly unusual circumstances, uh, as you say, the fact she's she's you know, got through the year without, you know, becoming the story herself, really, I'm sure she'll she'll be pleased about. But yeah, I think, uh, as you kind of point out in your interview, things might um, get a little more interesting over the next uh, year or so. Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of wider um, issue about getting ready for, for uh, something like independence referendum debates. There's no, no legal advice being taken yet. She won't see anything until it comes across her desk. Um, I mean, this is a bit tangential to, to, the, to the interview itself, but I mean, a quick sort of run around the room. I mean, is there appetite for independence in the country? That's one question. But the other one is like, is it actually going to happen? Is, is there going to be a legislative debate at Parliament? Do you think that we're actually going to get to that stage in 2023? I mean, I don't think many people, including Nicola Sturgeon, think there's going to be an independence referendum next year. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I'm not sh even sure in their heart of hearts if they would want one because, you know, they need to be sure they're going to win it. And, and the evidence at the moment is that the country's pretty much still split down the middle. But I don't think that means they won't pursue one. Um, yeah. uh, I think they need to, to satisfy their own supporters. Uh, they've got what they say is a mandate from last year's election and you know they they basically from a kind of strategic point of view they need to force the Westminster government to reject it don't they um, or go to the courts to block it and that kind of puts the Tory government in a bit of an uncomfortable yeah. position and potentially could you know boost support for the yes side in the in the longer run yeah um other sort of ideas that uh, Alison was was um reflecting on there being how she thinks she might have presided over a, a more diverse parliament. Um, Adele, you were listening to that as well. Do you think that that voices from the backbenches, voices from um, places that might not be getting that much amplification, are they are they being heard? Is, is this a parliament that's more diverse, do you think? Yes, yeah, so the last election was definitely quite a milestone moment in terms of diversity. There was more women um, 
elected. There was uh, the first wheelchair, full-time wheelchair user elected. And um, there was also the first um, woman of colour elected. And I think that they've done the best they can in terms of, I don't think you could argue that people aren't given their their chance to speak it, but I think it probably goes back to a deeper issue that she kind of alluded to of doing that work to see, well, does that actually play out in the reality in the stats? Because I think most women will have been in situations where they feel they struggle to make their point heard sometimes um, because sometimes there are more people that like to have their voice heard more. Um, and I think that is really where the work has to be done in seeing whether is it women that are getting the high profile sort of roles in each party. So in terms of there's obviously certain briefs where men tend to dominate, such as transport was one that we obviously have Jenny Gilruth now, but prior to that, it's often seems to be men that... Um, that lead on that one. So it's, I, I guess it's about doing that. Yes, women uh, have been elected now in greater numbers, but is is that actually following through to the positions that they're getting in their parties and to how much they feel they want to speak and they want to contribute? Uh, I guess that's that's the question that it means to be seen. I thought that was an interesting point about the sort of audit that they're doing. Um, and, and it was an observation of, of Alison's that, yeah, for some reason, it was almost entirely men that spoke about transport for some reason, which just does seem odd. So, yeah, they're, they're obviously looking into the sort of more root causes of it. And it'd be interesting to see how that develops. Well, I mean, there was plenty to chew on there, but that's by 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 no means all that's been happening this week. It's not just been council elections and um, thoughts about parliamentary process and what's to come. If we had if we had more time, we, we'd be able to trot around a, a lot of different stories this week. But I, I think there's been a couple that have caught our eyes this this week. I mean, Justin, you 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 covered something earlier. There was um, there was an interesting two parter, and it's all to do with policy and tax and profits and who who pays their way. I mean, windfall tax is something that's always been raised around these parts. But uh, tell Mercedes Villalba. The Dundee-based MSP, she had some some thoughts as well this this week on on how taxes and profits should be used. Well, yes, as you say, with the cost of living crisis ongoing at the moment, we've seen some interesting or some different ideas proposed to you know tackle this cost of living crisis to essentially be able to give more money back to people. Um, obviously, the windfall tax has been one of those foremost ideas. The idea that these companies that are making a big profit should have to reinvest some of that into the public who are struggling. Labour's MSP Mercedes Villalba took that a step further when she suggested that all private profit should be outlawed. Now, obviously, Labour took a major lurch to the left in recent years under Jeremy Corbyn, but I would imagine that even this would have been seen as quite extreme if it was to appear in the manifesto, not just taking away the profits of a major oil company, but essentially anyone who is making any sort of private money. The Tories branded it all communism, and they saw it as a good chance to attack Labour as not being as sensible or as moderate as they purport to be now. Labour very, very quickly were quick to say, you know, this is not our policy, we do not support this. Even if Labour do want to appear, you know, in the side of the working person here, they obviously also want to seem like a pro-business party and don't want to be seen as too left-wing as they perhaps were under Jeremy Corbyn. Then on the other hand, we had Michael Gove very much coming out to bat against a windfall tax and... It's interesting that the Tories are defending the measures they've set out to help people, 
but they seem very, very reluctant to go any further than that. So they seem reluctant to take anything that could be seen as radical or perhaps even transformative in any way. And they're obviously very keen to, I suppose, still nail down this Northeast vote and to kind of retain supporters in the Northeast. And I find it interesting that months after you had the COP26 conference in Glasgow, where Boris Johnson talked a big game, he was very, very dramatic about the potential consequences of climate change. Now that we have, you know, this gas crisis with Russia due to the war in Ukraine, now that we have the cost of living crisis, the Tories are very, very reluctant, again, to move away from oil and gas at all. And if anything, seem to be promoting it more than they arguably were one or two years ago. You mentioned Michael Gove. He was on the telly the other day as well. Um, and although that we're, we're talking about him, we're, we're missing the main thing, really, which was was the range of accents they adopted when he was sort of talking about windfall taxes. I'm, I'm going to... I'm obviously going to go around the room and see who can get the best impression. I'm not, I'm not really going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But um, just for the benefit of, of of listeners, let's just have a, a quick two-second burst of um, Michael Gove speaking on Sky. Turning it into uh, a major capital letters, a big news story. Yeah. He also went into Scouse, his own accent, some other approximation of it, um, and another bit of US newsreader. I don't know, but I think um, Michael Gove ro- rounding off rounding off the week with a with a major capital letters big news story is probably the, the best way to to end things. So that's it for this week. Thanks to Alison Johnston, Callum Ross, Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following the Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.